The Living Traditions Festival is back Friday, May 17th through Sunday, May 19th at Washington Square Park in downtown Salt Lake City. You will find a global food court, live music, performances, art, workshops, Bohemian Brewery, and stuff for kids. Full disclosure, this is my favorite Salt Lake Festival. For details and to see the full program, visit livingtraditionsfestival.com or find them on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. The Ogden Music Festival kicks off on Friday, May 31st and is absolutely one of Utah's hidden gems. The fest brings a great weekend lineup to Fort Buenaventura, a 26-acre park that feels wild in the middle of Ogden City. You can camp for the weekend or just drop in for a day. Kids under 16 get in free, and tickets start at 25 bucks. See Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway, Las Cafeteras, and so much more at Ogden Music Festival. Tickets at OFOAM.org. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. The state of Utah has written its first ever strategic plan for outdoor recreation. The goal of which is to ensure Utah has the nation's most well-funded and well-managed outdoor recreation system in the country. Lofty. So who is the Republican legislator tasked with this planning effort? And how is he thinking through it? From Moab's tourism crisis to the Little Cottonwood Gondola. It's Monday, February 26th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Representative Jeff Stenquist, you are a Republican legislator from Salt Lake County. You're also the chair of the Utah Outdoor Adventure Commission. Now, Utah just unveiled its first ever outdoor recreation strategic plan. And I have to tell you, when I read the press release, my first reaction was absolutely, why has the state waited so long to take a strategic approach to reinforcing this sector of our economy? Well, that's a good question. I can't necessarily answer why it's taken so long, but... It was about 2018, 2019, when there was a, actually a report by the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute that identified this as an area that needed some focus for us to help, you know, just kind of get organized, have a strategic plan around it. And so I was actually asked to head this up and ran legislation to create the Outdoor Adventure Commission and, and get this effort started. And we've been working for about the last two years meeting with stakeholders across the state to uh, gather information and data and to put together this plan. So it's been a it's been quite a few years of work on it. I mean, we're in the legislative session. There's been a lot of talk about energy production. Should we be like reading the introduction of the strategic outdoor rec plan as state leaders kind of leaning into the financial perks of a conservation economy? and out of extraction. I was surprised to see that recreation is leading extraction in terms of the makeup of our GDP. I don't see it in terms of an either or that we're trying to move away from one to another. Certainly recreation is a big part of not only our quality of life as Utahns, but also a big part of our economy. And it's an opportunity for communities across the state to develop recreation economies in in different areas to diversify their economies in addition to whatever they might have. So 
Um, you know, and talking about energy extraction, you know, the Uena Basin is a good example. That's a big part of their economy there, but they have a lot of really amazing landscapes and opportunities for outdoor recreation as well. And they can help, you know, diversify their economy. We look at Carbon County, where they've had a lot of coal plants that have closed, and they're looking for ways to enhance their economy that where they have they've lost some of that economic development from what they had in the past. You know, for a while, the idea of diversifying rural economies around conservation jobs has been called just transition. Do you think that the states may be kind of catching up to that idea? I, I think that it's we're recognizing the opportunities that might exist in certain areas. I think we have very traditional areas uh, where there's lots of recreation happening. You think of Bear Lake or Moab or Springdale. I was just there. Those kind of, yeah, those kind of areas, you know, that, that that's a big part of those areas. But we saw, especially during the pandemic, a big boom in outdoor recreation. People just getting outside that were, we were cooped up inside. And, and it was a great opportunity for lots of people to get outside. But some of these areas are getting seeing a lot of use. And we need to have the ability to manage the, the uses, especially with increased visitation, but then also maybe spread out that visitation into different areas. So one area isn't overwhelmed, but that's spread out a little bit across the state. I'm interested in this idea that these two economies of extraction and outdoor recreation can coexist. Is that a pipe dream? No pun intended. You know, one of my favorite places to visit, I go there all the time. I've been going there for 30 years. It's Moab. I'm hiking and I'm mountain biking on trails and there's oil rigs right there. It doesn't bother me. I think it's fine that those things can coexist. You know, sometimes there are conflicts, particularly when you're talking about private property rights and so forth. A lot of the access to these areas too, maybe were developed because there was mining operations happening or other types of of industry happening. Uh, And so there are old roads that now are, you know, provide access into these areas that I, I think that kind of thing we can sort of cooperate on and we can utilize assets that are existing. I'm glad you brought up Moab because we just got a report from the Kemsey Gardner Institute that in 2022, Utah tourism generated just a tad under $12 billion in visitor spending. And that is a very sexy number. But there's this popular notion in outdoor recreation, I'm sure you heard in assembling this plan, of loving a place to death. What are some Utah spots that we've loved to death? And how might this plan take measures to further protect or, dare I say, resuscitate them? That's one of the areas that we identified that we need to make sure that as we're looking at our strategies and and implementing specific plans in certain areas that we're thinking about how to preserve areas for future use. One of the important things we do want to provide is access. We don't want to put a fence around the outdoors and keep people out. We want people to get outdoors and enjoy these incredible areas and landscapes. But sometimes that requires infrastructure. We need trailheads. We need we need bathroom facilities. We need you know roads and things like that to provide that access. Otherwise, you end up with an area that's got trash. We need, we need law enforcement. We need emergency services. Uh, all of those things need to be provided so that people can recreate responsibly and safely in the outdoors. Are there some particular like hotspots in the state you, you think are currently underfunded or that the plan has identified as needing this kind of investment? You know, every area 
has different qualities and different needs. You know, like, you know, we've, we've already mentioned Moab. They have particular challenges. But you look at other areas like Emory County, for example, that there's not a lot of visitation there, but there's amazing landscapes there. And maybe it's just undiscovered. So maybe some of those visitors, instead of overwhelming Moab, could try a few different areas. So yes, there are areas that could use some more investment, but every area needs help in different ways. You know, Moab needs more affordable housing for their workforce. And that's a particular challenge there because there's limited private land with so much, they're surrounded with so much federally controlled land. And so that's a different challenge than another area that just needs some trailhead infrastructure and um, lacks funding for search and rescue or, or other types of challenges that might exist. We have in the state, we have opportunities to provide funding through transit room taxes on hotels, restaurant taxes, and that might work well for an area that has hotels and restaurants, but not every area has that. You know, one example, and I think people maybe don't think of it as much, is Tooele County. It's so close to the Wasatch Front that people just go there for a day, take their side-by-sides, whatever they're going to do, go out and recreate. And they bring impacts in terms of, you know, they might have search and rescue calls. They might have trash that needs to be deposited. But then they come they come back to the Wasatch Front. They're not staying in hotels. They're not eating in restaurants. Maybe they're buying gas. And so there's not they're not capturing revenue in that area to help offset the costs of those impacts. And so I'm trying to figure out ways, and, and I've got some legislation to help equalize that a little bit and help those counties with, you know, Wayne County might have 2,500 residents and 4 million visitors in a year. And that small population just doesn't have the ability in the tax base to support that type of visitation. So we need to balance that out a little bit. Is Wayne County where Escalani is? Yeah, that's Corey and, and um, yeah, that area. I have to go around and visit all these areas in the state as part of my official state duties. I have to get out and hike and mountain bike and all the things. Yeah, it's which I love. I love doing that. Whenever posture comes up in conversation, we all do that thing where we immediately sit upright and pull our shoulders back. Did you do it just now? I did a movement session with Chandler at Embodied Patients, and after a few gentle corrections, I was surprised to find sitting up straight is incredibly easy. Chandler's practice combines over a decade of study in yoga, Pilates, and the Alexander Technique. So why should you invest in your posture? Let's start with the link between better posture and better breathing. Whether you're returning to activity from an injury, looking to manage pain, or just have the sense things could be a little easier, Chandler will teach you to create sustainable movement habits so that you can enjoy the things you love for longer. Maybe that's running marathons. Maybe it's walking the dog. Visit embodiedpatients.com to book a session with Chandler and give yourself the gift of your own attention. Spring is when leases expire, and if you're looking for a new or better apartment situation, here's the scoop at Ico Fort Union. Fort Union is Ico's newest build in Cottonwood Heights off 1300 East and 6720 South. And as they say in real estate, location, location, location. 
Ico Fort Union puts you 10 minutes from the mouth of Big Cottonwood Canyon and central to all the Fort Union shops and restaurants. But the complex is located on a dead-end street, so you get peace. Ico Fort Union offers studio, one, two, and three-bedroom apartment homes, plus these very cool three-bedroom work-live apartments. So if you're starting something new, you can live above your business space. Amenities include a pet spa, a spin loft, a bike hub, and EV charging stations. And they are signing leases right now. So visit liveatfortunion.com for a tour. I mean, it's interesting to hear you bring up Emory County because I think for a lot of people who already like to recreate there, one of my favorite places to camp is near the Buckhorn Wash. I guess there you would call it the Buckhorn Wash. And there is this fear, I think, a lot in this kind of planning of, oh, my God, when if you build it, they will come. When the crowds, when the people, quote unquote, discover this, then what? And that's part of why I'm so surprised that the word strategic Like, there have been outdoor rec plans guiding the state and growth in the past, but that this is a strategic approach now is kind of surprising to me. But I want to talk a little bit about the plan because the governor has described it as a working document, not just kind of something we're going to lay out and forget about. So I want to ask you about some of the key strategies and what we should expect from them in terms of practice or specific projects. You brought up access. Let's start there. This idea of increased access to outdoor recreation. What could that look like? So that could look like certainly things like making sure that we have adequate trailhead parking and road access, trail access. It could be building more trails and more infrastructure where it's needed, when there's where there's a lot of usage. One of the challenges that I've seen, particularly, I guess, in the state of Utah is because so much of our land and so many areas that we recreate on are under the control of of the federal government. And so we're recreating on forest service land, on BLM land, it might be county land or, or whatever, and cooperation and collaboration between all these different levels of government and different land management agencies is incredibly important for us. You might have a trail that crosses multiple jurisdictions. And we have to think about that or or even a river. We have to now look at that as one recreation asset and coordinate between all the different groups. And so part of it is, and, and some of that comes down to private land too. So getting back to your question about access, you know, a lot of it is working with all these different groups and land managers to say, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to manage this together and coordinate it in a way that provides a good experience and provides the ability for people to come and recreate in these areas? When I think about access to outdoor recreation as an urbanite and someone who hosts a a show about Salt Lake City, I think not just about the infrastructure of the destination, but getting there. Like, you know, for non-rural Utahns, for people who live in the, our urban center, how what does this plan mean for them in terms of accessing these places? You know, the, the strategic plan that we have has four sort of high-level strategic, we call them cardinal directions or, you know, principles that we're trying to, to focus on. And one of those is um, improving awareness and education about how to recreate in a safe and responsible way too. That's 
that's an important thing too, because for those of us that live along the Wasatch Front, and then we go out, you know, this is, I'm, I'm one of these people that I go out on the weekends and recreate in these areas. I have to make sure that I do so responsibly and safely. And so a lot of that just comes down to education where it's, you know, when I go backcountry skiing, I have to make sure that I'm educated on how to safely, you know, avoid avalanches. Especially this year. Yeah. Yeah. And last year, last year it was pretty crazy. And so that's one of the areas of emphasis that I would say that we need to focus on and help people understand. Because I think you go out into the, into, into the backcountry or into these rural uh, wild places, there's not necessarily the services that people have come to become accustomed to in more urban areas. Another highlight in the framing of this plan that I thought was interesting is increasing collaboration between the public and the private sector. Public-private partnerships has become like, I feel like a veritable drinking game in this city in recent years. Mm -hmm. We're hearing this idea a lot. What does that look like in, in outdoor recreation? Well, it's really just an invitation to partner again, whether we're working with our federal partners, our local partners, but also bringing private individuals into that as well and saying, you know, if, if there are private individuals that want to, and there are a lot of user groups out there, anglers associations that want to promote access to fishing areas or, you know, other types of user groups that are very passionate about these activities coming together and collaborating together and, and, and working together to find solutions. One thing that I found at working in this area is people get very intense sometimes about some of these discussions because we're talking about people's passions. We're talking about the things that they live for to go out and do with their families on their vacations and on the weekends, and they care a lot about them. And so I think it's helpful to harness that interest and that passion to say, okay, let's work together to figure out how to solve some of these problems. Um, we hear a lot about conflicts with closing OHV routes and, and other things or user conflicts. It's something that we run into all the time when you might have hikers and runners and mountain bikers and equestrians all using the trail system, same trail system. And how do we manage those user conflicts, those land conflicts? Those are a lot of the challenges that we deal with. Yeah, I mean, the new trail system at Butterfield Canyon, I, I'm a member of the Backcountry Horsemen of Utah, so I utilize that network. And then also like Corner Canyon, I think the county's done a pretty nice job in recent years with avoiding just single trail, everybody on it. You should know which side you should be on. Like there are some bike-only trails, equestrian-only trails. Should we expect more of that in more places? I think so. You know, I, I started this when I was on the city council in Draper building the Corner Canyon system. And I think we were kind of out in front on a lot of these issues. And we had to, we had to learn the hard way um, by trial and error how to deal with some of these issues. And I think that some of those solutions that we came up with, like, for example, sometimes it's just better to have a hiking-only trail and provide that access. We found that one of the most, you know, the biggest problems was mountain bikers going too fast downhill. And so we provided downhill-only trails, and, and people would ask, well, why are you why are you creating a trail that's just for the bikers? And I would try to explain, no, this trail is for everyone because then the bikers can go fast on that trail and they're not doing it on this other trail where you're hiking with your kids. And so it's actually providing safety for everyone. 
the last sort of point in this plan that I thought was really interesting and I want to talk about with you is the idea of evenly distributing the economic benefits of outdoor recreation. You mentioned that there are parts of the state that might not be getting the kind of attention they deserve for the crown jewels of that place. What does that look like? What, is, what does that necessarily mean? Well, I think it's giving an opportunity for local communities, if, if that's what they want, to develop their recreation and tourism economies. You know, I've, I've had the opportunity to visit cities across the state, meet with local stakeholders, and I show up and I say, hey, I'm, I'm here from the state. I'm here to, I'm here to help. And, and sometimes the response I get is, how do we keep you Wasatch Front people out of our backyards? And, and, and I try to say, okay, well, people are coming. Let's figure out how to manage that the best way that we can. And, and, and I'm saying that there's, there's always going to be contingent of people that kind of have that mindset. But a lot of communities are saying, yes, how can we, how can we build and develop our recreation and tourism economy? I'll, I'll share one, I think, really good success story that we've seen. And that's in Richfield. Richfield has developed a trail system and it has started to get a lot of buzz. Um, I was actually in Colorado and just happened to run into some people on a trail and they talked about this trail system they found in Richfield. And now it's a destination for them whenever they're traveling between California, California and Colorado um, because it's right off of I-70. And Richfield is starting to see the economic benefits from people making Richfield a destination. Cedar City has built out some amazing trails there as well. And so I think that kind of a pattern is something that we can duplicate in other areas, even places like Bear Lake, that they have a lot of tourism, but it's always been centered around the lake. But they've got incredible mountains around there that they can say, okay, well, let's add other activities that people can enjoy when they're up here and maybe even more year-round activities. So even a place that's seeing one type of one type of recreation, maybe they can add more to their portfolio and extend their seasons and just anything else that they can, you know, just finding creative ways to help them with their economies. And it that helps employ outfitters, builds jobs in, in those areas. And so it, it benefits the whole community if we do it in the right way. I mean, I have to say on that note, I was at Bear Lake last weekend, and one of the things that I found kind of shocking is that the lake wasn't frozen. <laughs> and I know, like, normally in January, there's the big um, ice fishing festival. And so I wonder how you all are also thinking about how our changing climate might impact recreation futures in a lot of these places. Like, is there contingency for that in some of this planning? We just need to be flexible, you know, because it might open up opportunities year to year as things change, people will adjust and go to places where the conditions are right for the type of recreation that they want to, they want to experience. You know, if, if ice fishing isn't viable this year in Bear Lake, then that's something that they, you know, if they, if they're, if they diversify, and I think that's, that's the benefit of diversification is if you're not putting all your eggs in one basket and it's like, well, okay, if you're not ice fishing, we've got snowmobiling, we've got other things. I even I even participated in ski joring that they did downtown a couple of oh, weeks. Love ski joring. I had never heard of it, but then so, somebody said, "Come and do it," and I had a, a a good time. And so now I'm thinking I need to go up to Bear Lake and try it up there. If you have a variety of things, then I think there's always opportunities. I cannot let you go without asking you about the proposed gondola at Little Cottonwood Canyon because you represent a part of Salt Lake County that neighbors the Cottonwoods. You mentioned you used to be on the Draper City Council. 
There is heavy rebellion against this gondola plan from local mayors and councils, and I think polling's not amazing. How does the proposed gondola align with the goals of this plan? Because that's an outdoor rec infrastructure project. You know, I'm a big proponent of the gondola proposal because I think that the status quo in Little Cottonwood Canyon just isn't sustainable. And also any solution that relies on that road where you've got 56 avalanche paths across the road and it's closed for avalanche control or or just covered with avalanches oftentimes throughout the year. And a bus route or something like that that's on the road is always going to be susceptible to slide-offs, to weather conditions. And so that's why I think the gondola is a is an innovative solution that I think works. I mean, it's it's a mass transit solution with zero emissions in the canyon and can move people reliably and safely, you know, in a variety of conditions, you know, even when the road's being cleared of avalanches. There was a very in-depth study that was done by UDOT that concluded that it was the most viable solution that we have. Maybe not a perfect solution. Not There's no perfect, easy, cheap solution to this, but I think it's a great solution for us, and I hope that we can, we can build it and hope to ride it someday. Representative Jeff Stenquist, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Funding for search and rescue teams across the state keeps coming up with lawmakers. Of note, it's even made its way into the legislation related to the Major League Baseball Stadium proposed in the Fair Park neighborhood. And that's because, whether it's a flash flood or an avalanche, rescuing people from backcountry mishaps is incredibly expensive and not very infrequent. The average cost of one rescue mission is about $2,000 and can run up in the tens of thousands. Only a few months into last year, the Utah Department of Public Safety's Aero Bureau did more than 200 helicopter rescues. Just three months into the year. So here's a cool program. If you recreate a lot, you can purchase a search and rescue assistance card. It's $25 a year for an individual and $35 for a family. Being a cardholder contributes to the state's search and rescue fund, but it also covers some of the costs if you ever need to make the call for help. I put a link in the show notes in case you want to purchase one. I also think it could make kind of a great gift. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye. Bye.